Good morning again. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians with me. As we continue our series on chapter 3, we'll be looking at the second portion this morning. But we'll read from the first verse again, and we'll read to verse 8. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath, whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, uh, we thank you once again for your word and for this opportunity for us to be able to look into its precious truths this morning. Father, we pray that your spirit will be working now on our hearts and that our hearts will be open to that truth. Father, that I might speak the words that you have given to me faithfully and boldly. Lord, that we might be challenged to live further for you. That we might forsake this world and the things which lure and tempt us into it. That we might see the eternal rather than the temporal. And Father, we just pray that we would have you first and foremost in our minds at all times, seeking to give you the glory and the honour because you deserve it. That we would love you with all of our hearts is our desire this morning. That we might grow into the, the stature that you would have us to be, the image of your Son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll read to you a couple of uh, interesting illustrations this morning. <clears throat> student, a Christian student asked his teacher <clears throat> he said to him I am earnest about forsaking the world he wanted to forsake the world and follow Christ but I am puzzled about worldly things what is it that I must forsake he asked his teacher the teacher replied coloured clothes for one thing coloured clothes Get rid of everything in your wardrobe that isn't white. Stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Sell your musical instruments and don't eat any more white bread. You cannot, if you are sincere about obeying Christ, take warm baths or shave your beard. To shave is to lie against him who created us to attempt to improve on his work. Is that the sort of, question, is that the sort of answer you would give someone who wants... Who was seeking to follow Christ in this world? 
Or does this answer seem a little bit absurd to us this morning? Because it seems a bit absurd to me that you would stop eating white bread, get rid of all your coloured clothes um, and don't sleep on a soft bed anymore. Yet, this answer was given to a student in one of the most celebrated Christian schools in the second century. What are the sort of rules that we set ourselves in our church that might seem a little bit strange? What are the rules that we see around us in Christendom today that might seem strange like those things? How strange would our rules seem to people of different eras going back or maybe forward? How much of what is taught today in Christianity is a collection of rules and regulations which don't really resemble the gospel and let me share another story with you. There was a youth worker a number of years ago in an ethnic community who attended a church that had Scandinavian roots. Being rather a creative man, he decided he would show the youth group a missionary film. And the sort of film was a, a black and white, very safe, um, religious-oriented movie. The film projector had, hadn't been off for an hour before a group of the leaders in the church called him in and asked him about what he had done. They asked, did you show the young people the film? In all honesty, he responded, uh, yeah, I did. We don't like that, they replied. Without trying to be argumentative, the young youth worker reasoned, well, I remember that the last missionary conference, they showed slides. And one of the church officers put his hand up, singling that he had to stop talking. Then in these words, he emphatically explained the conflict. He said, if it's still, it's fine. If it moves, it's sin. You can show slides, but when they start moving... You're getting into sin. That's a, have you heard that sort of stuff before? If you go back, if you go back maybe 20, 30, 50, 100, a couple of hundred years, you may hear more of these sorts of things taking place. And I think it's, it's a bit of fear coming into the, uh, the, uh, the, the church in, the, in these sorts of things. The fear of new technology... I mean, if you look at the internet today, you'd say that a similar sort of thing. The internet is evil. Well, it's not evil. It's, 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 it has the potential to be evil. It has plenty of bad stuff on it. But in and of itself, it's a medium. Same thing with newspapers, same thing with books, same thing with a whole lot of other radio and everything else. All of these things have the potential to carry sinful messages and to, you can be caught up in them. But in and of themselves, they aren't evil. Just as showing a missionary movie is not evil, just because it moves. What does this have to do with today's sermon? Well, last week's sermon was about rejoicing in the Lord. It was about us looking at our lives and seeing whether we do find our joy and our peace from the relationship we have with Christ. And then what I wanted to achieve last week was for us to look at our circumstances and, and to compare those to the joy that we have in Christ, and look how small they are, really. 
when we have such, a, such an incredible relationship that has given us eternal life and peace and joy, it's cleansed us from all of our sin, it's, it, we, can't, we cannot comprehend what we have. Part of our problem is that we have so much, we, we're a little bit bamboozled by it. And so we tend to get sidetracked. We tend to get focused on the things of the world and we get so worried about what's going on over here and yet we miss the bigger picture. So while the, the Apostle Paul starts off this portion of his letter with an encouragement to rejoice in the Lord, immediately he moves to something else now. He, the second verse says, Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. He immediately tempers that joy with a warning, an alert. And while we have much to rejoice in, we must not forget that we are players within a cosmic conflict that's, that's been going on for thousands of years. A conflict that has raged from the beginning and we are the characters in this spiritual saga. We are the characters in this story. The ones who rejoice because they've been looked upon with such favour from God, they've been given so much from the eternal king, but the, the situation is this, we are in the midst of a battlefield. And sometimes we forget it. Yes, you can rejoice with the relationship we have with your commander and chief. But we need to beware that there is a battle raging around us. You see, when we called upon the Lord to save us, he cleansed us of all of our sins, adopted us into his family, and by this very fact, we have become the targets of the enemy. We have their attention. This enemy who has sought from the beginning to usurp the throne of God himself and who will fail in the end. So while Paul begins to teach about what it means to rejoice in the Lord, he contrasts this with an example of those who don't rejoice in the Lord at all. They don't rejoice in the Lord. In fact, they rejoice in their own accomplishments. And Paul warns us about this type of behaviour and these types of people. And in this example, they actually rejoice in their own supposed ability to obey the law of Moses. In writing about them, Paul uses very strong terms we would not normally use with other people, would we? When was the last time you called someone a dog? That's a strong term. He refers to those who would rather rejoice in their own achievements rather than the Lord's achievements as dogs, evil workers, and the concision. And I'll explain a little bit what that, uh, what that term means in a short while. So Paul preached the gospel of grace. And this gospel teaches us that through no effort or action on our part did we achieve salvation. Rather, it was given to us as a gift. This thing that we've received called eternal life is primarily given, given us two things. The first is life through Christ. And the other is the actual righteousness of Christ himself. So it gave us life where we were dead in our sins and trespasses. But not just that. It didn't just wash away all of our sins. It didn't just cleanse us of every bad thing that we did. Rather, what it also did is it gave us the righteousness of Christ within us. So when God looks at our account, he sees a fantastic list of good things that we've done, even though we haven't done them. 
we are righteous before God. You see, there are two aspects to a law. One is you don't break certain rules, correct? So if you go down the, the, the freeway and you, and you go faster than the speed limit, you've broken the law. Is that correct? Okay. But the other aspect of the law, if you don't break any rules, it doesn't necessarily mean you're righteous before God. It simply means you just haven't broken the rules. Righteousness is all the good stuff that you then have to do to build up your account. And the Bible says that we have not only been, um, all our bad stuff has been paid for and reconciled, but you know the good stuff that we could never do because the Bible says that our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. God credited us with the righteousness of his own son. So to God, we are righteous, justified, holy before him. Not because of what we ever did or could ever do, because even now we cannot do it. But it's simply because of the relationship we have in Christ. Some found this gospel offensive. Some found this, this truth that Paul was preaching very offensive to their religion. And all religions really do the same thing. They teach the same thing. That eternal life comes from performing, performing certain ritualistic duties. And from keep keeping certain rules and regulations. <coughs> but the gift of eternal life goes against this notion. And it's only because Christ took upon himself all of our sin, all of our punishment that we deserved, that God can then now give us all of his righteousness as a free gift. The only condition imposed upon us, the only condition to receive this, is to believe him. That believe means I trust him. Because if I believe him, I have to trust him for what he's done. That's the only condition to receive this beautiful gift from God. It's not a work. I don't have to work for it. It's a question of a decision that needs to be made. It has nothing to do with my strength, with my wisdom, with the discipline I have in my life, or any other resource that I might be able to call upon. The believing referred to in the word of God is a radical contrast to human work or action. As Paul emphasises in, in Romans chapter 4, he says, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, that's us, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So by faith we receive the righteousness of Christ without works, before we've done one thing, <clears throat> Those of you who are employed normally understand the word KPI or the, the phrase KPI, don't you? Okay. This is how employees are measured these days. So whether you're doing your job or not is measured on certain things you have to achieve. Every person has it one way or the other, whether you actually are, they call them KPIs or not. But if you're employed, there is a certain obligation you have to your employer, do you not? You have to fulfil certain obligations because if you don't fulfil your obligations, you then are found to be a delinquent worker and you might not get paid. You might be removed from your employment. There is a certain level you have to achieve, certain things you have to achieve. That's an obligation. That's what it means to work for your salvation as well. The Bible says we don't have, to, we don't have KPIs set upon us. We don't have obligations that we, we have to meet in order to find God's favour. The difference is God gave us the favour first. And the things that we do now are because we simply love him. It's not a job we have. Do you understand that? 
Because every, everyone else in every religion in the world has a job they're trying to work towards. They have this God that they serve. And if they don't meet certain criteria, they may not get to be with their God. You see, it's a job. And if they don't meet their KPIs, they will be removed from their employment, removed from the eternal place of bliss that they're hoping to achieve. The Christian, on the other hand, has the reverse way. God says, I'm going to bestow all my favour upon you now simply because you've put your faith in me. And everything you now do, do because of love. There is a massive difference between what Christianity teaches and every other religion in the world teaches. The problem is, in this particular passage, is why, why Paul warns us, is that there was a particular group, let's call them the party of the circumcision. And they believed that they needed to add circumcision and other Old Testament commands to this condition that I've just said, which is simply belief. They believed that you not only had to believe in Christ, but you also had to follow all the Old Testament rules and regulations, and you had to be circumcised, because God hadn't given that up yet. God still wanted you to, to follow all those, those rules. But the problem is that any addition to grace alone distorts the gospel and feeds human pride. It pushes us away from thankfulness, being thankful to God, from doing things out of love for him. And pushes a person to obligation. Rather than relying on the wonderful work that he's done for me. And resting in that. Finding my peace. It pushes me to a situation where I have to perform. Otherwise God's going to throw me away. In Acts chapter 11, verse 2, and 15, verse 1, we read that some Jewish believers in Christ held to the idea that Gentiles came to believe should also follow the law of Moses. And in Acts chapter 15, we find that the leadership of the church in Jerusalem rebuked this. It refused this notion. It stood against this particular view. The Judaizers, the ones who believed in circumcision, their boast was in their achievements in the flesh. Their supposed compliance law. They were so wrapped in what they were doing. We follow the law. We do all these, we follow all these rules and regulations, and you guys don't. You should be doing the same as us. Our challenge in today's sermon is that we don't fall in the same trap. You know, we might not be pushing circumcision, we might not be pushing the Old Testament law, but what do we push? What is it that we push? That we say, you have to be obligated in order to be accepted by God. You have to do certain things. Do we fall in the same trap? And since we may not be tempted to boast in our compliance to the law of Moses, perhaps we would do well to look at our own hearts and determine if there are things in there that we do in our duty to God, which cause us to become proud. What things do we do that cause us to be proud about what we do? Things that we use to compare ourselves to other people. You know something? I, I'm very faithful to church. I don't miss a service. But Joe doesn't go to all the services. I'm therefore better than Joe. I do. I pray how many times a day. But I know he doesn't. 
I read my Bible morning and night. But I know that person over there doesn't read their Bible all the time. You know when you start getting to that situation, the Bible says you started to fall into a trap. And you started to create your own religion. Things that we assume make us more acceptable to God are in fact religious observance. That's probably not even related to the gospel of Jesus. So Paul says that we should rejoice in Jesus, but we should be aware of those people who would try to rob us of our freedom in Christ, of our joy and our peace, by laying obligations and rules and saying, if you don't do this, God is not going to accept you. So Paul says in verse 2, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. So let's start with the term dogs. Never a nice term to use in any, in any uh, uh, culture. Paul warns that the Philippians are the, the, of this type of people and these dogs do not appreciate the things of God. Dogs don't appreciate the things of God. They have no sense of spiritual things and if they are savage, they can turn on you and kill you. This is a derogatory term, pure and simple. Turn to Matthew chapter 7, because Jesus also warned about the same thing. Jesus also warned about dogs. Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. Praise God for the rain. Can you hear me back there? Turn up the sound soon. Jesus, Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, he says, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. What was Jesus talking about here? Jesus is saying the same thing that Paul is saying. There are certain people, there, are cert there is a certain ideology that spurns the grace of God. It, it shuns the grace of God because it wants to do it its own way. So when you, when you approach the person, you say, God loves you. And that person looks and says, why would I want the love of God? I don't care whether God loves me or not. The Bible says, don't keep casting those pearls before those type of people who spurn the love of God, who spurn the grace of God who reject the whole notion of how God is loving and kind and generous and patient and gracious and merciful. When you speak about those things before some people, they immediately turn against you. And our Lord says, don't cast your pearl before those people. Go to the next person. Because they'll only trample the beautiful things you're giving them. They don't appreciate the value in the words you're actually saying. It's the same thing when we declare the love of God to people who are so full of their own righteousness that they can't appreciate the love that God sent his son to the cross to die for them. Ever shared the, how God loved them so much that he sent his only son to die on a cross for their sins? Do they always take it with joy? No, sometimes they take it with absolute disdain. God says, 
the Lord says, don't keep giving that stuff. You know how you should deal with the person who, who completely rejects the notion that God loves them and that God sent his son to die with them? Leave them with the Lord, please. Leave them with the Lord. Because the Lord will condemn them. And the law is there to break the hard heart so that they can receive the grace of God. You see, if you give grace before the heart is ready to receive it, it'll only trample it down. But when a person comes to the realisation that they're a sinner before God and their, their heart is broken, it's only then that they'll actually receive the solution to their problem. You see, you can't force someone to take a medicine that, when they don't believe they're sick, can you? But if you can convince them they're sick, if you show them there's a sickness there that needs to be healed, once they believe you, then they can, they can actually acquire the, the medicine. And this is what this thing's all about. So Paul says, beware of dogs. Beware of, beware of people who look at the gospel of Christ and they do not appreciate what they've got. Beware when someone says to you that, that salvation is not a gift and must be earned, keep away. Then he gets, talks about evil workers. Now, evil workers are basically people who labour to sin. They spend their energies on things that are contrary to God's ways. They sin naturally and break the obvious commands of God in order to achieve their own purposes. Turn to Mark chapter 12 with me. We'll look at an example of that now. Now you'll notice in, in Mark chapter 12, verse 38, Jesus starts with the same, the same term but speaking of a specific group of people. And he says in verse 38, And he said unto them in his doctrine, Beware of the scribes. Huh? So beware of the evil workers. Beware of the scribes. Why, Lord? Which love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplace and the chief seats in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at the feast. Are these people looking after their own selves or are they looking after other people? You're getting the picture already. But look at verse 40. It says, which devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. These people weren't into serving God. They were into lining their own pockets and actually making sure that they, were, they looked good in front of everyone else. And he says in this place, they make a pretense, a show of long prayers in front of other people to show how holy they actually are. But at the same time, they're, they're robbing widows, the people who are the most vulnerable in, the, in their society. Because if they paid them to pray and they paid them to teach and they paid them for all these different things, then they promised they were going to receive this, these wonderful solutions to their problems. Yet they were ripping people off. <coughs> Jesus says, beware of them. These are the types of evil workers that the Lord is talking about. These are the type of evil workers that Paul is talking about. When he talks about evil workers, he's saying people who actually manipulate the gospel and use it for their own benefit. Let's go to the concision. That's an interesting term. Concision is only used once in the Bible. It's not doesn't found, not found anywhere else. It's a special word, you see. You see, throughout his ministry, Paul had to contend with certain 
Jewish Christians that we know today as Judaizers. And these were false teachers who often followed Paul wherever he went, causing him problems. So after he went somewhere, they would go and follow later on and then try and reverse what he was teaching. They believed and tried to force the Gentile Christians into circumcision and the law of Moses. So if you're an Italian or a Greek or a Scythian or wherever, wherever else you were, Paul would come, plant a church, he'd teach you the gospel, he'd move on. Then these guys would, would, uh, would rock up soon after and they'd say, Oh, did Paul tell you that you were meant to be circumcised? Oh, he forgot about that. Oh, let me tell you what you have to do. So you have to be circumcised. You have to now follow all the rules and regulations that Moses prescribed in the Old Testament. Let me show you all the 613 rules you have to follow. Paul calls his people the concision. Turn to Acts chapter 15. We'll learn a bit bit more about these guys. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. It says there, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Straight out lie. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, you know that the Bible puts it nicely, had no small dissension. You know what that means? They had a massive argument. Right? No small, it was big. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. Do you know what happened in Jerusalem? They said, lay no other rules on these people. This is not what what God has asked them to do. These are Gentiles. These aren't Jews. The word concision is is almost a sarcastic term. It's a term that's created specifically for a group of people who are mutilating their bodies. Self-mutilation. You see, you understand what circumcision is, don't you? Well, this was like another term that meant self-mutilation. This went a whole lot further. And it was a term that was used to particularly describe these type of people. And it's interesting if you look at the, the Greek, it says it compares two words and they rhyme together. So when it says that these people are Judaizers or con- concision... The word is catatone. Sorry if I didn't pronounce that properly. But when it talks to the, when it speaks about the next verse, where Paul says we are the circumcisions, it's peritone. So they're the catatone, but we are the peritone. There's a there's a bit of a there's a, a contrast to that thing. The Galatians were troubled with the same type of people, though. These these guys got around. And that caused a whole lot of problems in the early church. Turn to Galatians chapter 5, because Paul has same concerns for the Galatians as he did for the Philippians and, and as he did for the other churches that he planted. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, he says, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. You did run well. 
Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will, you will be none otherwise minded. But he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offence of the cross ceased. I would that, I would that they even were even cut off which trouble you. What's he talking about? Exactly the same thing. These guys have gone into the, the, the Galatian church and started saying, you have to be circumcised if you're a Greek or if you're an Italian or whatever. You have to be circumcised for, for you to receive salvation, for you to receive the grace of God. And Paul's saying, what, why, if I'm preaching this thing, if I'm teaching that it's important to be circumcised, why am I being persecuted for not preaching it, for not teaching it? Paul's saying, I wish that they were cut off completely for you. Once again, he's playing with the idea of mutilation. He's saying, I wish they were actually chopped off completely. In contrast to these people who place their confidence in the Old Testament law, Paul declares to the Philippians, he says that you are the true circumcision. Not the ones forcing people to be circumcised in the flesh. Go, to, go back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. And he says there, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. So Paul confidently pronounces that it is the Philippians who trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation and righteousness. These are the ones who are the genuine circumcision. He was like, how does that be? How does that work? How can they be the true circumcision? And the guys who are going around talking about Moses' circumcision, um, they're not the right ones. Well, he explains it more in Colossians chapter 2. Go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. And then we'll go to Romans. Just so you understand the specific point. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. Now, Paul, the Apostle Paul is speaking about Christ here. And in Colossians 2.11, he says, In whom also you are circumcised. This is in Christ. So when you put your faith in Christ, the Bible says somehow you have been put in him. You, you are somehow transported to be within him. And it says, In whom also ye are circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, not with human hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Do you know when Christ died on that cross and he paid for my sins? When I put my faith in him, somehow Frank died over there as well. The old Frank with all his sins and all his problems and all, and all the, the, the baggage that he had, the Bible says I died with him. That's what baptism is a picture of. Huh? Do you know that old Frank, what God did with it? Or with him? He cut him off. He separated the old me and created a whole new me. Do you see how that's a picture of circumcision? Do you see how the, that, that old was just cut off and thrown away? God now, when he sees me, does not see the old me anymore. He sees the new me that he created. That's why a person has to be born again. I think I've mentioned this to you last time. You can't be born again until the old one has been killed. The old one has to die at the same time you're born again. If you're born again, what happens to the old me? I'll tell you what happened to the old me. It was 
He was crucified on a cross. And now the new me is in Christ. That's the circumcision that happened. A circumcision that happened with our hands. God did it, not man. Turn to Romans chapter 2, verse 28. Look what Paul says here. Romans chapter 2, verse 28. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. There is a distinct difference between following a rules and regulations that work on the flesh, that work on the outside, and what God did when we put our faith in Christ, who changed us from the inside and then works outwards. There is a distinct difference. Religion tries to work from you from the outside in. Christianity changes your heart. It cuts away the old one and gives you a new heart. That's the circumcision that God has performed on each of us, which has separated us from the world and has made us his own children. So Paul says, this is the real circumcision, not the one where people are are boasting about their success, what they've done. You see, where the flesh isn't cut away, where there is no genuine circumcision, the person will continue to rely on their own efforts and their own success. And they'll bring those things before God one day and they'll say, Lord, do you remember this phrase? Haven't we done this and that for you? Haven't we cast out demons for you? Haven't we done? And the Lord goes, I never knew you. And they go, hang on. We called you Master and Lord. We did all these things. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Never. Not that he knew them and then they ran away or they went away. He never knew them. Why? Because they continued to rely on their own success and their own efforts. They thought it was by their efforts, by their wonderful works, that God was somehow going to accept them. But if any of us are in that sort of delusion this morning, please change your mind. Because if you think that you are a religious person, that somehow God is going to look at how wonderful you are as a Christian, all the good things you've done and all the, all the times you've been to church, all the Bible studies you've, you've, you've attended and all the Bible you've read, it doesn't matter in the end. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, none of that will matter. You can boast to, to, for eternity, but you'll be boasting from hell. Paul strongly says, beware of these people who would seek to bind you up again in following rules and regulations so that you become acceptable to God. You know something? I was a Catholic before I was a Baptist. And I know the Catholic Church teaches that you are to perform certain works in order to receive the grace of God. Do you understand? So when you're baptised, it's one work that you're supposed to follow. When you go to confession, it's another work you're supposed to follow. When you go to mass, when you have communion, when you do all these, these, all these rules and regulations that they have. And when I grew up there, the rules and regulations were more strict than what they are now. But before you had communion, you had to wait at least one hour before you went in. Who made up that rule? I know that was just a rule just to, they came up with. I don't know where they got it from. But that changed as well. Before it was a whole day you had to wait. 
before you had before you got to have communion. Why? Because you didn't want to mix up Jesus in your stomach with some other food. I don't know. But if you but the amazing thing is with the doctrine of the of the church there is that they believe that if you do these things, God will then give you grace. That if I have communion, God's going to look more favorably upon me and give me more grace. And then if I go to to confession, God's going to look more favorably. You know something? That's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. The exact opposite. You don't earn the favor of God. You don't earn it. Because otherwise the Bible says you're working as an obligation. You can't earn the favor of God. What are you trying to prove to him? That you're righteous? (laughs) What righteousness do we have? The Bible says they're all filth before God. Everything we do is tainted with some sort of with some sort of impurity. But yet there are churches that call themselves Christians that would teach that would teach the exact opposite of what the apostle Paul teaches here. And poor people are actually following it day after day following rules and regulations and and all these things hoping that God's going to have favor on them one day when they stand before thing and they'll say, "But I believed in Jesus." Yeah, but you know something? You're still trying to earn your way to heaven. You didn't trust him. You trusted yourself. And regardless of whether you say you believe him, your actions speak louder than the words that you say. So Paul says the real circumcision are the ones who worship God in the spirit, the ones who rejoice in Christ Jesus, the ones who have no confidence in the flesh. Where's the focus? Not on me. On him. You rejoice in Christ and what he's done and who he is. You worship God in the spirit because you know all your being says, I need to worship this God because of what he did for me. He deserves all of my attention, all of my love, all of my adoration because of who he is. Not because of that I'm trying to earn some sort of a spiritual badge at the end of this thing. And now Paul uses himself as an example here of what real circumcision is not. He looks at his old life before he was a Christian. He starts, to, he starts to give us an example of, hey, this is what it means. This is what the wrong side of this coin means. He examines his life before he came to Christ. So what he does, he lists all of his accomplishments. And he argues that more than anyone, if anyone was supposed to have confidence in the things that he did, he should have had more confidence than everyone else. And he starts to list them. He says in verse, verse 4, Though I might have confidence in the flesh... If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof, he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul knew from experience what it meant to have confidence in the flesh. He was confident himself. Because when he compared himself to all the other men around him, he was well past what they were able to achieve. He did so much more by birth and by religious attainment, he had outdone his contemporaries. So he says, we could have boasted in his racial nature. Since the ultimate example of those who boast in the flesh and and not in the Lord was the party of the circumcision And since their ultimate boast was in their physical circumcision, Paul reminds them at the beginning, in verse 5, that he was circumcised on the eighth day. You see, he was a genuine Jew. He wasn't a proselyte. 
He didn't come from another thing. He was circumcised by the Levitical law on the eighth day. He was of the stock of Israel. He was a genuine Jew. He, didn't, he wasn't one who became a Jew later on. He was born that way. You know something? Most people boast in their culture, don't they? One way or the other. Doesn't, doesn't everyone believe their own culture is better than all the other cultures? It's only because you've grown up in that culture. And you look at other cultures and we say, oh, they're strange in the culture over there. What the way they do that? But the, the, the actual thing is that you become comfortable in your own culture. Well, the Jews had a lot to boast in their culture. Hey, how, how, how would you be if you were the culture, if you were the race that God chose as his special people, his special prize on the earth? How about if you were the, the group of people that the Messiah came through, that had all the prophets, that had Moses, that God showed his hand in saving so many times? You, if you could boast of, of kings like, da- like uh, King David and all the things that went along with it, they had reasons to boast. Italians couldn't. We could boast of a few things. We built some nice uh, coliseums and stuff like that where we murdered a few people. Um, <laughs> but they had a lot to boast in. And Paul says, well, you know, I'm a genuine Jew. I wasn't, I wasn't brought into this thing later on. I am a genuine, born, born in the, uh, circumcised on the eighth day. And he says, of the tribe of Benjamin. And why would he say the tribe of Benjamin for? Well, you know, Benjamin was a son of Jacob's wife, Rachel. He was the only son actually born in the promised land. Israel's first king, Saul, was of the tribe of Benjamin. And it was the only tribe that remained true to Judah when the kingdom became divided. So Paul says, hey, I'm the tribe of Benjamin. Don't forget it, because some of these other tribes went a little bit crazy. And then he says he's a Hebrew of the Hebrew. Well, he's an, he was an exemplary Jew. He was, an ex- he was the example of all the other Jews, the ones they were supposed to follow. Both of his parents were Jewish. And then he says, concerning the law, a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were the, were the conservatives of their day. They were the, they were the religious uh, party. They were known for their loyalty, their patriotism and their conservatism to the law of Moses. They were the bigger party than the Sadducees. And the Sadducees didn't believe a lot of stuff in the Bible. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So the Pharisees stood proud in terms of their pride of what they believed. So Paul says, I'm a member of that particular group. And then he says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Paul says, you, want to, you don't want to know what zealous is for your faith and for your people? Look at me. As soon as I saw a threat to the Jewish people and to our religion, I went after these Christians. I persecuted this church. I made sure that they were put to death. They were stoned. He illustrates his sincerity for his people and for his faith. And even though he wrongly persecuted the church, it says the Bible, the Bible says that he was always true to his conscience. He always did it. He always did it believing he was doing the right thing. And he says that. In Acts chapter 23, verse 1, it says, And Paul earnestly beholding, beholding the council said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God unto this day, even when he was killing Christians, he says. He was doing it because he thought it was the right thing until Jesus met him on a road to Damascus and said, You're doing the wrong thing. 
Paul did not claim that righteousness that comes by the law was worth anything before God. He lists all these things and he doesn't say this is all fantastic stuff and that God would look down upon it. But he simply says that if anyone else thought that they were righteous by following these rules, he was even more. So he should have more reason to boast than everyone else. But despite all these earthly and fleshly accomplishments that Paul had, it says in verse 7, But what things were gained to me were gained then. I counted, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. Paul has given us his own personal testimony to help us understand where our confidence should lie. How does your how do your accomplishments stack up to Paul's? Stack up well? Do you have much to boast in this morning? Because I don't. I have nothing to boast in. Everything I have, everything that's good in me, didn't come from me. It came from him. Paul used to put confidence in his lineage, in his religious works. But then he came to realise that all of those things were no benefit at all. In fact, he said they were a complete loss, waste of time. They were vanity. Confidence in that sort of thing actually works against us. It moves us away from our confidence in Christ. This is what we need to get in our heads and get it very clearly in our heads. The reason you come to church, the reason you do everything you do, please, Don't do it out of obligation. Don't do it because if you don't do it, God is going to not favour you anymore. Do it for love. Do it because he deserves it. Do it because you were saved to this life and everything you want to do, you want to please him with. Because if you're doing it to... If you're doing it as an obligation, if you're doing it as a work that you think you can show one God one day and say, look at what I've done for you, you might be sadly disappointed with the answer. The confidence we should have is in Christ alone, not in our own abilities, our own strengths, our own accomplishments. We should never trust in those things. You know, rejoice in them if you have them. Rejoice. But don't trust in them. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 with me and we'll close up this passage. The Apostle Paul had probably... One of the brightest futures within his religion and within his, with his people that most, most of us could actually claim in our own religion or our own people. He had a bright future ahead of him. He would have been a leader in his church. I'm talking about not just a local church, I'm talking about probably within the, the Jewish, the whole Jewish religion. But he said he gave it all up. And it says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10, he says, look at the difference. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake. So he gave up everything he had and goes, I look like a fool in front of everyone now. He says, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak. 
but ye are strong. Ye are honourable, but we are despised. In verse 11, even unto this present hour we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labour, working with our own hands, being reviled we bless, being persecuted we suffer it, being defamed we entreat, we are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things under this day. How's that? Paul went from a, a preeminent position among his own people to being the offscouring of people. The offscouring, persecuted, reviled, defamed, and everything. And in the end, he wore it. You know why? He could wear it because he trusted in his Saviour. Where do you put your trust today? Where's your trust? Do you trust in your accomplishments or do you trust in Christ? Because there's only one who is perfect in this world and none of us can claim it except for Jesus. He is the one who is perfect. He is the one who we should have our full confidence in because what he did for us on the cross cannot be compared to anything we'll ever do in our lives. Where is your confidence today? How do your religious and spiritual accomplishments compare? Do you trust in them? Or do you trust in Christ? Where should your assurance be? Where is your confidence today? The people Paul warns about in this letter had everything upside down. They believed that through their efforts that they would be acceptable before God. It is an area that we can easily fall into. We can start to get a taste of that thing where we, we do something good and we think, oh, look what I've done. And we start to tick it on our box. And that all the things that God, the reasons God should love us and God should show favour to us. But we need to remember that it's He who is our joy. He who is our life. He accomplished everything for us. There is nothing for us further to accomplish, please. We can't add to what He's done. Whatever you do, do because you love Him. Our only obligation now is to continue to trust him, to love him, to focus our attention on him because he is our life. And outside of him, there is no life. And we need to be telling everyone else about this amazing thing that we have because sometimes we lose track of it. We lose track of it and we begin to get caught up in the religious side of it and we shouldn't. Remember that Jesus is a source of our joy, our hope, our life, our love. If we focus on ourselves and our achievements, we rob him of what he's done. Where is your heart today? Do you spend time, your time comparing your religious standards and accomplishments with others? When we do that, we set ourselves up as the standard by which others should be measured. Are you comfortable with that? Being the standard by which others should be measured. If we aren't perfect yet, if we aren't perfect yet, then let us, Every one of us look to our perfect Saviour. Look to him in everything that we do. Who set us an example by becoming a servant for every one of us. That's what God calls us to do, to love one another, to love him with all of our hearts. Where is your confidence today? God bless you. Thank you.